On December 18th, 2015, J.J. Abrams and his crew released Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens, into theaters. Different parts of the movie mirrored the previous Episode 4, A New Hope, in over 20 distinct ways. The odd choice of film strategy upset millions of viewers claiming they were lazy and copied the original. So why did the writers do this? They wanted to make it similar to promote a nostalgic effect from the original one. The writers of the Bible do this too. There are a number of interesting similarities between the story of Adam and the timeline of Israel. These surprising parallels made some scholars rethink how we should read the Genesis and Exodus narratives. Would the ancient Israelite have seen Genesis 1 to 3 differently than we see it today? Israel's history very curiously parallels Adam's drama in Genesis. Israel is created by God at the Exodus, while Adam is created out of dust. Israel and Adam both inhabit very productful land. Israel is given Canaan, a lush land flowing with milk and honey, and Adam is placed in the Garden of Eden. Israel gets to remain in the land as long as the nation obeys the Mosaic law, and Adam is given the law to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a stipulation for remaining in the garden. Israel persists in its pattern of disobedience and is exiled to Babylon, while Adam disobeys and is exiled from the garden. It is worth mentioning that the creation accounts of Genesis 1 and the Exodus from Egypt both seem to possibly have polemic elements against the gods of the surrounding cultures, but the evidence is highly debatable and dense in information, so we will have to go through the data in a different video. Interestingly enough, some of our earliest extra-biblical accounts and other books within the Bible mention some of these same patterns in their respective texts. Sometime between 500 and 300 years before Christ, a group of rabbinical writers wrote their own little commentary on Genesis called the Bereshit Rabbah, or Genesis Rabbah in English. In it, they noticed some parallels between the Genesis narrative and Israel. When speaking of the waters being divided by the firmament in Genesis 1, 6-9, Genesis Rabbah 5, 5 says, the Holy One, blessed be he, made a stipulation with the sea that it should divide before Israel. Not with the sea alone did God make a stipulation, but with everything which was created in the six days of creation. I commanded the sea to divide and the heavens to be silent before Moses. Of course, in Exodus 14:21, it speaks of God separating the sea, which made the sea into dry land and the water was divided. Sounds a lot like day three, doesn't it? So in the creation of both Adam and Israel, we see the separating of waters by God to make land. Then in Genesis Rabbah 19.9, the writer quotes from Hosea 6.9 saying, And Israel transgressed the covenant like Adam. They're like the first man. What of the first man? I brought him into the midst of the garden of Eden, and I commanded him, and he transgressed the commandment. And I judged him with sending away and casting out. His sons whom I also brought into the land of Israel, I commanded them, and they transgressed the commandment. I judged them with the sending out and the casting out. Something that is also interesting is that Adam is given a command to subdue and rule over the earth, while Israel is given a command to subdue and rule over those in the promised land. In Genesis 1.28, God gives the command to subdue the earth and rule over the fish, birds, and every creature on the ground. Bible scholars have recently noticed the harsh militaristic language used of subdue and rule. Ian Proven writes, the second verb in English subdue is a translation of the Hebrew word kabash, 
It is the language of conquest, usually military conquests. It reappears in passages like Numbers 32, 22, 29, and Joshua 18, 1, where we read of the land being subdued before God and his people. Or 2 Samuel 8, 11, where we read of David subduing all the nations. Warfare therefore lurks in the background of this verb. There are 13 occurrences of the Hebrew word kavash in the Hebrew Bible. Every instance is of negative connotation, including war conquests, enslavement, trampling, and even sexual assault. What about to rule? Joshua John Van E. writes, In all of the occurrences of Radat in the Hebrew Old Testament, the one being ruled is under some form of coercion to submit. All of this begs the question, why is there such harsh language in a seemingly innocent creation story? While many evolutionists have attempted to argue the original writer was implying that there was death before the fall, it might make better sense in this context. If God is giving command for man to conquer the land and its inhabitants, it coincides quite well with Israelite conquest. In day six of Genesis 1, Adam or man is created. Then if we go to Genesis 2-5, it tells us there are no plans on the earth or land depending on how it's translated. And then in verse 7, God creates the man. Now whether you think this is a second creation or not, verse 8 implies that the man was not created in the garden. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Wherever the man was at the point of creation, garden was east of that. Seth Postel writes, God graciously brings Adam to this special garden from another place. Much the same way, he graciously brings Israel out of Egypt in order to place them in the promised land. See, not only is there a paradise-like field to the locations, they were both placed there by God and then exiled for not following the rules. Now let's look at some possible explanations. In Seth Postel's book, Adam as Israel, he explains the similarities in that Genesis 1-3 prophetically foreshadows Israel's exile as a result of their failure to keep the Mosaic Covenant in order to wed the final form Pentateuch with a prophetic eschatology for why Israel needs to cleanse the land. Seth goes on in saying, Thus, Adam's entrance into the garden to conquer the serpent anticipates Israel's entrance into the promised land to conquer the Canaanites. Adam is brought into a good land wherein dwells an evil inhabitant. This inhabitant must be subdued. Later, Israel is brought into a good land wherein evil inhabitants dwell. Israel, like Adam, must subdue them, as we shall see. Adam and Eve's failure to subdue this inhabitant and their fall into temptation foreshadows Israel's eventual failure to totally subdue the Canaanites and their fall into temptation. Postel points to other clues in the Genesis text that suggest the writer and intended for a parallel to be made for the serpent of the Genesis 3 and the narrative of the Canaanite. As previously mentioned, Genesis 1, 26-29 is God's command to fill the earth and subdue it. Eight chapters later, Genesis 9, 1-7 retails Genesis 1, 26-29. In Genesis 2, God plants a garden while Noah plants a vineyard. The stories have Adam, Eve, and Noah all partake of the fruit. Adam and Eve to the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, while Noah drinks wine which is made of grapes. While there are many different interpretations as to what sin Ham committed by uncovering Noah's nakedness, an increasing number of scholars have come to the conclusion that Ham had sexual relations with his own mom, which was Noah's wife, and this explains why Canaan, the son of Ham, was cursed. While I might add, just like the serpent was cursed. Coincidence? I think not! 
And this view is based off passages like Leviticus 18, where the writer of Leviticus explains what it means to uncover the nakedness of someone, which includes uncovering the nakedness of the father, meaning to sleep with his wife. Later in the same passage, it concludes the previous verses by saying, Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. While there could be many different interpretations for what the writer of Leviticus was referring to in verses 25 and 26, of which we don't have time to go into here, this could be an explicit reference to the story of Genesis 9, which was the birth of Canaan, father of the Canaanites. Early mentioning of Canaan and the Pentateuch in Genesis 9 and added details of the territory of Canaan in Genesis 10, 15, and 19 makes some scholars think the author of Genesis is trying to tell us something. It seems as if there was a spotlight on the Canaanites from the very beginning. While it does seem odd in our context that such specific details were made as it had no real impact on the Genesis narrative, it is important to note that the entire Table of Nations passage seems to have weird, random details written all over it. Verses 8 to 12 speak of Nimrod and his conquests, which include Babylon and Assyria. Scholars who think the Torah was written or redacted while Israel was in Babylonian exile point to this passage as a means of helping the readers of Genesis connect the dots to where Israel came from. Postel would see this as a providential foreshadowing of what is to come. While verses 8 to 12 mention Babylon and verses 15 to 19 mention Canaan, verses 13 and 14 mention Egypt who plays a pivotal role during the Exodus. Genesis 10 also coincidentally includes 70 total nations. As we all know, the biblical writers love their number seven. It seems like there's something definitely going on there, but how much and to what significance is a question for another time. A view like this has some intriguing pros. It implies that Genesis 1-3 was written before Israel's beginning. Adam is seen as historical, and the story of Adam and Eve is given credence to biblical inspiration as prophecy. Pete Enns takes a different approach. He says, maybe Israel's history happened first, and the Adam story was written to reflect that history. In other words, the Adam story is really an Israel story placed in primeval time. It is not a story of human origins, but of Israel's origins. The question in Genesis is whether Adam will be obedient to the law and stay in Eden, thus continuing this special relationship, or join the other Adam outside in exile. This is the same question with Israel. After being created by God, will they obey and remain in the land, or disobey and be exiled? I know what you're thinking. Oh, these are just those youngster Bible gurus trying to find hidden codes and meanings in the Bible again. I agree. The Bible is not a hidden code book, and we should be cautious about coming up with things that the ancient Israelite would never have seen. Dr. Michael Heiser frequently says, We need to have the Israelite in our heads as we interpret the Bible. When looking at any passage of scripture, we need to ask, is this how an ancient Israelite would understand this phrase? Our main goal should be to read the text as an ancient Israelite would read it rather than a 21st century reader. If Genesis was written for an Israelite in Babylonian exile, he or she would see a story of God's providence and love for God's chosen people 
as well as what not to do. If you take a view like John Walton and many others, they also would have seen it as a polemic against the gods they were surrounded by. If we take Seth Postel's view, an Israelite living during the Canaanite conquest might see Genesis as a prophetic foreshadowing of what the Israelites needed to do as they make a way to fulfill God's law in the promised land. While I do think there is good reason to say the writers were writing the stories in a stylistic way, it would be mistaken to therefore conclude Adam wasn't a historical figure. Parallelism doesn't in any way necessitate the stories have been made up. It would also be a bit of a jump to conclude Genesis speaking prophetically as there are many other design patterns in the biblical text which I will talk about in future videos. It would be a bit weird for this specific pattern to be prophetic when the others obviously aren't. Considering the many different retrojections and Babylonian elements of the Genesis account which wouldn't belong in a text written in 4000 AD, it would make more sense to me that the best way to explain the similarities between Adam and Israel would be to say that the scribes were writing about Adam from older stories, possibly oral tradition, and then adding stylistic elements to help with memory, teach moral lessons, or make theological points. At the very least, it is God communicating that there is a pattern of God's covenantal relationship with mankind and our inability to keep even the simplest of God's commands to hold our end of the relationship. But God goes further in each instance as he promises a redeemer to restore that relationship.